Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Steyerwalt. And I'm Eliana Johnson. And don't you know you're just daggone welcome here at good old ink-stained wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, you're all right. You know, you come in here, you got pastries, you got good energy, you're bringing good vibes. I feel like a big summer energy from you. I think you're the only person who would describe me as bringing good vibes. I feel the good vibes. I feel the good. I feel like, are you a summer person? Are you ready for summer? I am. Well, it's been raining like every day here, so I'm happy that the weather is nice. But I I am also happy that we are back in person. Yes. And yes. as a result of being back in person, back with our pastries. Patisserie. Oui, yeah. oui. Do you notice, though, that do you think that Minnesotans, uh, people from northern New England uh, and other such places, are more summer oriented because of the preciousness of summer? Is that is my theory correct on that? I think so. I think there's more summer. I, th- I think it's like a summer intensity that comes from it's it's sort of like. I get very excited about corn, and there won't be. Do you like corn? Do you have feelings about corn? Love corn. So corn is not worth eating. Corn on the cob is not worth eating until about July, right? It's all, and then when it comes, sort of like every all of the people in the in the north are like corn. It's like the tomatoes, and then the corn. It's and we're just eating. We're doing all of this stuff in summer corn desperation. Corn is a good Minnesota State Fair food. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But we all know where the best corn comes from. Best corn comes from Illinois. As the people in Illinois say to the people on the other side of the Mississippi River, we grow f- corn for people, you grow corn for animals. And I think there's truth in that. I think there's truth in that. So the, for all the bad things that I ever say about the Cubs and the many antipathies that I have towards the Cubs and get a lot of hate from Illinois people, my father was born in Illinois and my favorite president was born in Illinois and two of my favorite presidents were born in Illinois and they have the best corn in America. So there you go. Take that, New Jersey. I'm thinking more about your question. I've become more indifferent to seasons being in a more, like, temperate climate on the East Coast. Like, I care less that it's becoming winter, becoming spring. Now that I live in D.C., I had much stronger feelings about it when I lived in Minnesota. And I now have much stronger feelings about, like, why does anybody live there? Well, I know why I would, like, why... The I grew up in the Mid Atlantic. I grew up not too far from here. I grew up a, a four hour drive from here, and with I can say this, the weather in Washington's not that bad. Forty weeks a year. No, it's good. Forty weeks a year, the weather's pretty Very good mild. in Washington. You got six weeks in the summer that are truly heinous, and you've got six weeks in the winter where it gets cold, right? But you know how I enjoy the cold because I think of all the bugs it's killing. I think of why I don't have. Giant roaches smoking cigarettes greeting me when I walk into the kitchen in the morning and why we don't have flying palmetto bugs in our iced tea. So I'm grateful for that. Chris, what do we have on our front page this week? I think there's oh, a lot of stuff above the fold. We got a we have a we have a chunky funky front page. Let's do it. Up first on our front page, we have 
the Washington Post with a headline. Wow. Basically calling by by the former NBC News journalist Mariana Sotomayor, basically uh, calling Elise Stefanik a murderer. The headline is Stefanik echoed racist theory allegedly espoused by Buffalo suspect. So we have, I would say, five or we're going to buckle up because we're going to go. We have a lot on the the coverage of the Buffalo shooting because it really just our uh, the driveway into (laughs) the mansion that we're about to enter of the let's call it like the media blame game for the Buffalo shooting and and how all these Republicans and conservatives are actually at fault for. And we um, and we've talked before 18 year old did. We've talked before about the phenomenon of when there is a mass killing you the the different sides of the media the different media silos are like is this good for us or bad for us is this their guy or our guy and in this case it is and we should say off the top you know a sick person did a sick thing and i want to be careful around the subject and and also i don't really care too much about his motives uh, myself because i don't care about him I care about his victims. I care I care about them and their families who lost their loved ones. And I don't really care about this guy. So I, I want to say that off the top. But yes, the coverage has been intense. And the Stefanik one is interesting because while at least Stefanik has become very weird and very MAGA and referring to people as pedos in Twitter, the Washington Post just takes the next step and says, because of Facebook ads she ran in 2018, she is somehow culpable for this crime. Here's here's the paragraph from the Post Beast. While Stefanik has not pushed the theory by name, <laughs> that they're is, referring and, to replacement yeah. theory, the idea that Democrats are pushing for the uh, an amnesty for illegal immigrants in order to import more Democratic voters and win elections, which is something that some Democrats have actually pushed for. While Stefanik has not pushed the theory by name, she and other conservatives have echoed the tenets of the far-right ideology as part of anti-immigrant rhetoric that has fired up the Republican base ahead of the midterm elections. And they found her, I guess in 2018, was a Facebook ad. So... I, this is the, the last place it's in the tenuous, world. It's a tenuous it's a, it's, line between it, that and uh, the w- mass murder in Buffalo. One of the things you can count on the Washington Post to do is to make cringy Republicans to to go even beyond, right? There are a lot of things you can say about Elise Stefanik these days. But to go even beyond that normal kind of stuff and take it here, the, so let's talk just briefly in terms of definitional terms, because this is, as we talked about with critical race theory and other things, it's a battle for control of the language. And so what is repl- what is the replacement? Now, there's a benign, not benign, there's a mainstream idea. So the, the worst version, the most vile concept here is that elites, global elites, particularly Jews, are working against red-blooded Christian whites in Europe and in the United States to import immigrants to destroy Western civilization. And that the globalists, that this is intentional and they want to, this is like a red pill. And this is the guy, the shooter, the, the Scandinavian shooter who had, who apparently inspired the guy in Buffalo. So this is like elites and Jews and globalists are bringing these people in. So there's that, but then there's what 
Tucker Carlson and Elise Stefanik, and as you point out, people like Jen Rubin and others have talked about, which is it's political, that the good news about immigrants is that they'll help us defeat Republicans, right? Now, is that replacement? Is this replacement? Is whatever? It depends on who you're trying to accuse and who you're trying to blame. So there's some definition of terms. And what I find so appalling about, uh, well, I find, I think, What's appalling about the Post coverage is two levels. First, the attempt to draw a direct line between Elise Stefanik and this killer in Buffalo. But two, and it's something that we see both with Republicans, Republican immigration hawks, and the Tucker Carlson's of the world, like Republican lawmakers who are immigration hawks, and the television hosts like Tucker Carlson, is they call, they, they say uh, Elise Stefanik engages in anti-immigrant rhetoric. They leave no room for a principled opposition to illegal immigration or even a principled opposition to reducing immigration rates. That's, to them, that's just bigotry. Mm-hmm. And there's no space for an argument there. And I actually think that the way the Post covers immigration and that argument radicalizes people because they're labeling anybody who agree disagrees with them on the issue of immigration as bigots. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has a radicalizing effect. Well, there is the people are responsible for their own choices. And but there is what I think David from uh, was the person who wrote it and said, if the only people who will enforce immigration laws are fascists, then eventually people will elect fascists to enforce immigration laws. And, Democrat- and it's not even that it's if you believe in that, you're characterized as a fascist, and well, that has a radicalizing effect. Well, there, there is that, but I, I, I think the challenge here for me, at least, is radicalizing. It, I don't want to take agency away from people. I, I understand the part where Tucker Carlson says, you know, Vladimir Putin never called me a racist. Why are we mad at Vladimir Putin? He never called me a racist. So maybe you're radicalized by people's accusations of you and all that stuff. But I want to make sure we, I I keep agency for these individuals, people who are doing weird, bad stuff, ranging from being Tucker Carlson to committing crimes. I want to make sure that they're the ones who are doing it, that, that I understand that they're the ones who are doing it, that it's not somebody else's fault. And I want to make sure that we understand that calling somebody a nativist or anti-immigrant when their position is not anti-immigrant but is for enforcing immigration laws or a principled belief that like the country should have borders and that we should have you know this type of immigrants versus that type of immigrants is inaccurate and bad journalism well sure and lumping together people who are so there are a lot of people on the right who are anti-immigrant and there are other people who as you say want to enforce immigration laws and want to be able to choose which kind. That's a traditional model. And there are people who are anti-immigrant. And I think Tucker Carlson's probably anti-immigrant. I don't know. But there's a difference between somebody like Tom Cotton, let's say, who says, I want to I want to enforce existing immigration laws. I want to have borders. I want us to be selective about the people who are who are admitting to the country. That's not being anti-immigrant per se, nor is it being nativist, as com- as opposed to somebody who is concerned that white America is being bred out by the Jews who are using Agreed. Salvadorans Agreed. to destroy America's uh, culture. My Well, the icing on the cake for me of this Washington Post article in particular was that the, the kicker quote is from the Arizona 
Congressman Ruben Gallego. Oh, my god. And gosh. he says, your plan, hashtag Elise Starve Phonic, is to starve babies. You have no excuse, so now you're just lashing out. Picking on babies for political gain is so low and trashy. And I just wanted to point out, like, this tweet could be the subject of an entire Washington Post article that's like, you know, Rep. Ruben Gallego and gay Democrats engage in disinformation, alleging that Republicans want to starve babies. But instead, it is put in this piece with no comment that he inaccurately alleges that Elise Stefanik wants to starve babies. No context, just thrown in there because, you know, they can pass along Democratic disinformation with no comment. But for Republicans, they have to have an entire article about how the they po- have blood the post, on their hands. I'm sure that the Post will be soon investigated for disinformation. What? How does you have brought this to my attention? How does Paul Krugman say that tax cuts are related to the Buffalo mass murder? Paul Krugman has a headline from Monday. We are recording Wednesday, and it is from Voodoo to MAGA to Buffalo. And the voodoo is a reference to voodoo, the voodoo economics of the Reagan administration. And the quote is as follows. There is, I would argue, a direct line from the Laffer curve to January 6th to Buffalo. That's what Krugman writes in his May 16 piece. The Laffer curve is, of course, a reference to the economist Art Laffer's theory that increasing tax rates beyond a certain point is an inefficient way to raise revenue. Uh, He says we can draw a direct line from that to Trump to that mass shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo. Uh, It all makes perfect sense now that he points it out. And much as with Elise Stefanik and the pedo stuff, if everything is uh, pedophilia, then nothing is pedophilia. If everyone is Hitler, no one is Hitler. If everything is white supremacy, nothing is white supremacy. We dilute these terms. We, we, we water these terms down to the point of meaninglessness. And if the Reagan tax cuts that are now approaching their 40, the 40th anniversary is soon to be upon us of the Reagan tax cuts. If those were the pathway to the mass murder of black grocery shoppers in uh, Western New York, then every, the, nothing has any meaning at all. I want to bring up here, Tucker Carlson, you talking in response to this. Um, we're going to go a little bit you out of- want to get that before? Yeah, let's go a little okay. bit out of order here. We'll hear from Lawrence O'Donnell. We'll, we'll hear Lawrence O'Donnell's hot take after this, because I want to get, I want to put this all in a row. But let's hear what Tucker Carlson had to say. So he's citing- the kind of stuff that Democrats have said about explicitly with groups like uh, the Center for American Progress and others who have talked about the electoral advantages of bringing in more immigrants to water down old white voters and that they've been explicit. So he goes on this long rant about that. And then he says this. So let's listen. So let's see. If you don't want people to be paranoid and angry, maybe you don't write pieces like that and rub it right in their face and give them the finger day after day. Maybe that would de-escalate it a little bit. You think, Joe Biden, Anna Navarro? But they're not the only two. This has been the prevailing view on the left for a long time. Okay. Now, what I find interesting here is that Carlson spends the first part of his rant before we listened here talking about how the killer was just deranged and it's not his fault. And people who say that he did it are wrong to say that he is culpable or that anybody's culpable for talking about replacement and talking about these things. And it's not his fault. So what does he say there at the end? He says, well, actually 
it's not that they're mentally ill. It's that they're responding to what people like Joe Biden and Anna Navarro are saying. So he's, I won't say excusing, but he's contextualizing in a weird way this killing by saying, you can't blame me for the actions of crazy people who listen to me, and then says, but you can hold Anna Navarro and Joe Biden accountable for uh, white people being paranoid or anxious because of the stuff that they say. I thought that was a I thought that was quite a reach. I will say I read the, the I read the whole thing and I agree with the the point that you just made that it, which is that he muddies his point a bit. Right. But I thought the rest of the monologue was quite good about yes. uh, the fact that. The only person culpable for this guy's actions is this crazy guy. And so we'll link the monologue. And it jumped out at me reading it, but it is very well written. Really crisp, short sentences. And uh, I was impressed. So Fox News basically put up Tucker's monologue. They do it every day. Yeah. it's uh, And you can read it as opposed to listening to it. And um, the quality of the writing is is impressive. He's a very good writer. But he always goes too far or almost always goes too far and just as an aside I was he was he was ranting always ranting about uh how a Republicans supporting aid for Ukraine and how another Fox host Trey Gowdy had on his former colleague Dan Crenshaw from the Houston suburbs to come on and he was just attacking Crenshaw for pointing out the obvious thing that aid to Ukraine is not in any way involved with how much baby formula there is. The reasons for the supply chain failures with baby formula, if you if the federal government could buy more baby formula right now, they would do it. Trust me, Joe Biden would not have any trouble with buying a bunch of, uh, this. Is, we do not have a financial impediment. So Crenshaw had been talking about that. And then Carlson <laughs> just goes crazy. And ref- and these it's, he says, uh, you know, the more I think about it, it takes a lot of gall for Patch McCain to attack moms who were worried about baby formula. And it's like, well, he wasn't attacking anybody. And how are you going to say that a guy who lost an eye in Afghanistan, like this guy, the SEAL, you're going to like, I. it's just so ugly. It's so awful. And there's no bottom. It like never stops. So I just, I think with, I think the monologue is a good microcosm of Tucker Carlson. It's interesting. It's crisp. It's well written. You're through. You're through. And then he's like, "Oh, and while we're at it, one more thing. I just have to put the one more thing on there." And then you go, "Oh, you ruined it." I I like Dan Crenshaw. Crenshaw, hope you're listening. And if I were him, you'd embrace it. I would. Yes, I have my counterintuitive take. Is I like that name, I Patch McCain. I think he should own that and just be like, "I'm I'm I Patch McCain. That's me." <laughs> I think I think he should ask Tucker to come on the show, and his like Chiron on Fox should be Rep. I Patch McCain. I think uh, he should own it. It would be a way to go. And the last thing I want to say uh, about. Tucker Carlson uh, is th- that we should not talk about Tucker Carlson so much. And uh, Malcolm Glad- Gladwell, Malcolm Gladwell's blog. And I know everyone hates Malcolm Gladwell. And I know that I'm the worst for liking him, but he takes on and pulls apart the father Coughlin, Tucker Carlson comparison that is very common on the left side of the media these days and disinformation-y and all of this other stuff. I love, well, we'll get to the the disinformation board getting axed, but yeah. I love how they call it dis 
miss and mal information. Ooh, I've mal information. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. exciting. We've got a new category. So here's what Malcolm Gladwell said. There is no must-see TV today. The role of cable and streaming have shattered the old mass market into a thousand pieces. The New York Times made much of the fact that Tucker Carlson is the most watched TV news host. But let's be clear. In a country of 326 million people, Carlson has an audience of 3 million. With that kind of reach, it's statistically unlikely that anyone reading this newsletter watches Tucker Carlson. It's even statistically unlikely that any friend of anyone reading this newsletter watches Tucker Carlson. I am reminded of William F. Buckley's crack in the 1960s that he heard someone described as, quote, America's greatest living socialist. That was, Buckley said, like celebrating the, quote, tallest building in Wichita, Kansas. And this is a theme we come back to again and again. So much media criticism is just BS, right? So much media criticism is just my team versus your team. And now I can attack you for this, right? And now, now we can, th- this, is a, this is a tragedy that we can exploit against you. And I can use this against you. And I think an important thing for educated, thoughtful people, as you lovely people definitely are, is to remember this. Most of the people are not paying attention. And, took, and, and Father Coughlin had an audience of 30 or 40 million people in America. And Samantha Goldstein is here to nod. We have the statistical, we have the data we have the receipts to prove how influential Father Coughlin was in elections and how far his reach was. You can read all about it in my forthcoming book, Broken News, available August 23rd. But Father Coughlin, 30 or 40 million people in a country of 125 million people. Tucker Carlson, 3 million people in a country of 330 million people. Let's, like, keep it in perspective, y'all. End of rant. Yes, but now can we, I, I must hear, you must hear Lawrence O'Donnell. It's important for America to hear the crazy stupidity of Lawrence O'Donnell on, on the Buffalo shooting. We don't know why the murderer is alive tonight. The police had every legal right to shoot him on sight with a gun in his hand when they cornered him in the store. But they talked him into dropping his gun to the floor and then they arrested him. One of those police officers had been on the street with the unarmed 18-year-old Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Maybe Michael Brown would be alive tonight. For some reason, unarmed black teenagers and men seem more likely to be shot and killed by police than white supremacist teenage mass murderers with guns in their hands. Is this... The craziest crazy cakes you've ever heard. And he had a guest on who talked about this. And basically they're like, why didn't they kill this mass murderer? You're like, well, he was going to commit suicide. It looked like he was like surrendering and he would, what are you talking about? And there is a, you wonder, would it be, would you be happier if they had, if they had gunned him down? Was, is that what you wanted? That's what he wanted. It's sick. Like this is crazy and the it's also so ill-informed oh my gosh uh, untethered from facts and statistics that that is amazing just like well these two white supremacists they didn't kill these white supremacists but look at all these black guys they kill obviously the police are white supremacists you're like what are you actually talking about i feel so bad for members of law enforcement who have to try to navigate this garbage space and whatever you do, kill them, don't kill. Like, it's just, 
you're wrong no matter what 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 you do and it should not be that way that's a th- that's hot garbage and geez louise that's bad even for Lawrence O'Donnell are we going to talk CNN plus it would it be an episode of Inkstained Wretches if we didn't this, we're, this, we're, we're running shockingly, out of opportunities to talk about yes. it we're, we're running out of our the window is closing on CNN plus so we better get them in while we can well this is a news item that broke right as we're putting the show together that Chris Wallace, it has been announced. News uh, item is a generous description. Oh, my God. <laughs> that Chris Wallace will anchor. A, so Chris Wallace was the one of the, the flagship offerings. It was to be one of the flagship offerings of the new CNN Plus streaming service that the their new parent company scuttled. And we talked a, a bit about that after this, but that Chris Wallace will anchor a show on HBO Max and then featured interviews to air on CNN on Sunday mornings in whatever CNN's, you know, whatever the nine-hour block of Sunday coverage that CNN does now, that, that Wallace's interviews, which will will air there. I'm glad that they are finding a good thing to do with Chris Wallace because he is the best interviewer that I'm aware of working in television today. So that's good. I don't really care. <laughs> um, but I'll care if he comes for an interview on the show. Okay, now, ah, yeah. ah okay, yeah. so you're, you're, you're setting you a threshold. You need to make the ask. Did you, see, did you okay. see what the new CEO had to say? I did not. I did not. So, Warner Brothers. Oh, oh. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. This is, this is the, see, I'm setting you up. Now you care. Now I care. Okay, I'm seeing, thanks to the good Chris, Chris Steyerwalt, <laughs> the good-looking Chris, I should no, say. Let's not, let's not Although stretch Chris, it. Although, Chris looked just kind of cute, that... Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav, also known as Zas, said he wasn't sending a message with his decision to kill CNN's short-lived streaming channel, CNN, CNN Plus. He said, quote, it was a business decision, he told CNBC, the subscribers weren't there. I think that's like, that's poppycock, because he didn't really give it the chance for the subscribers to be there. Well, but but he- I, I believe him that they would not have been there. I like this Zaslav so far. What what I what I'm seeing about him, he seems to be sort of no nonsense, sort of frank, uh, and he seems to. He is, however, in this picture, wearing a puffer vest on set, on a TV interview, and that's troubling. That's oh, a troubling. I like, that. I like that. That's very Glenn Youngkin. But even that's Youngkin really would take channeling Glenn Youngkin, although he would have done the fleece, so it would have been a little more like body form fitting. Yeah, this is but weird. He he. I like he, that. He's wearing a puffer vest on set. I guess he's trying to have that discovery it's energy. Relatable. That at any moment like he could go out like bear grills and just like go, you know, Fine. eat. I like it. Eat uh, eat reindeer placenta to remain alive in the <laughs> wilderness. So that's good. But I. I, I like I like his I like his energy here. He's like, get over it. It happened. You have the weirdest taste. You like his energy, my energy. You said I'm bringing like good summer energy. You are bringing you, good summer energy. This, you're like a glutton for punishment. No. Uh, I. You know what? Here here's the thing. I know this is true. It's I I would far rather know how somebody feels and deal with that. the the bad The bad energy are the people who are hiding. If they if you know hiding it. And then letting it seep out. If you're unhappy, you let it be known. You do not say like I'm not like is anything wrong. You're like, like you're you you let it out. And today you seem cheerful and happy. Now can I? Speaking of rants, my thing about I've, I have a, a collision of rants around the post. 
Chris, uh, you're you're like en fuego today with rants. The post, unanchor- so I have two things here that collide. The post and climate alarmism and the use of unanchored statistics. So the Washington Post pushed hard this week with this headline, one in six Americans live in areas with significant wildfire risk. One in six? Wait a minute. That's less than 20%. Wait a minute. That's not that many people. Hold on. Compared to when? Well, we don't know, but we can say this, that right now one in six people with significant, and what is significant? Well, it's complicated. Well, if I have questions about this Washington Post, can I ask you where you got your data? And they say, well, yes, we're, we're pleased to say that we got it from the First Street Foundation. Well, what's the First Street Foundation? Oh, it's a climate activist group. Oh, I see. I see. Who funds that? Can you imagine if, let's say, they did it with, I'm trying to think, if the, if, uh, the Free Beacon did this study. They're like, and we used the Competitive Enterprise Institute's numbers from their global warming research. They'd be like, they're relying on big oil and they, the funding for the, this is outrageous. How can they do this? It's climate denialism. The Washington Post very blithely. At least with the Free Beacon, we're open about exactly. where we're coming from. Exactly. The, I like... Uh, significant is 16%. Significant That's is 16%. Learned. And then 16%. And eventually everybody's house will be incinerated. And 16% I, of the country's population today com, lives com, in hazardous areas. Well, no, not even. Significant wildfire risk. So what constitutes significant? Well, it's complicated and maybe yes, maybe no. And again, that's not to say that wildfires aren't a problem. It's not to say wildfires aren't getting worse. It's not to say any of that. It is to say- Chris, can I tell you more? Tell me anything. You're going to be shocked to hear this. Minorities face a disproportionate risk. Oh. What's disproportionate? Say it's not so, not disproportionate. <laughs> is it? Is is it perhaps because that poor people live in places that have more- Problems? Yes, it's true. But this kind of, so an, un, an unanchored statistic, I hate. I hate you, unan- unanchored statistics, in any kind of article. When you use unanchored statistics to push an agenda, when you use these things to create scare tactics, here's the truth about the Washington Post, which devotes a just a, a, a crazy amount of time and energy on climate stuff. Wait, can I can I add? You to can this? add anything. So Native Americans uh, on their list face the greatest risk, but blacks face the least risk. Uh, so Asians and blacks face a lower lower risk than whites. <laughs> what? But what if Native what if, Americans the most? So minorities they face a disproportionate risk, right, even though. And and where and where are where do Native Americans live in the United? Oh, is it in the the parched Southwest of yeah, the United? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's. All of this kind of ratcheting it up to, to juice the fear and anger stuff does not make it more likely that we will solve people's concern. We will address concerns about the climate and the environment. It makes it less likely. And just stop it. And, oh, and by the way, I believe it's still true. I don't know. But one of my favorite things about the Washington Post and its climate coverage, uh, they have a whole series. They have a whole section that's sponsored by Rolex. <laughs> And I love the idea that you're like, I am so worried about the climate, but also an Oyster Perpetual for 25K might be a good choice here. And you're like, maybe, maybe. I am guessing that Rolex wearers are the kind of people who donate to this First Street Foundation or Yo. whatever. Those are the the 
donors it was so, and funders of First Street. It was better when these people could just be Episcopalians and this the 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 new Gaia Rolex sponsored climate <laughs> based religion is annoying and please stop. I haven't followed this I've barely followed this Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing but you also have. Uh, well, Here's the quote. Although he has gotten old, my only reaction is she's still hot and he's old. Well, it sounds like his lifestyle might not be always conducive to you health know. and well-being. Yeah, it's possible. So here's a quote from, and we have, and don't worry, we have uh, statistics from Axios. Mm-hmm. Uh, a recent story on the homepage of the website Law and Crime wasn't a story at all. But a celebration, quote, Law and Crime Network hits record 330 million views on Depp v. Heard coverage. The May 2nd headline read, the site and its attendant YouTube channel gave viewer, give viewers a chance to, quote, watch the courtroom drama unfold live. Its tagline promises. And this piece, Advice is Interesting, we'll link it in the show notes, about just how the news business has this thing, and and here's the axios. By the way, I'm I have to do it. I'm Chris. S- this, I just clicked on the axios link. This tells me how out of touch I am with regular people. T- say because this heard Depp trial, I have paid zero attention to, and the number of social media interactions is like so outsized compared to anything else. And of course, like I have no idea that it's even going on. So, and Samantha will give me a thumbs up, thumb down, fact check on this. Johnny Depp sued his ex-wife, Amber Heard. I know the basic facts, yeah. I'm just in for anybody who's not. uh, Sorry, sorry. I thought you were doing this all for me. That just was a service to me. Johnny Depp sued his ex-wife, Amber Heard, for defamation in Fairfax County, Virginia, because she wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that intimated that she had. No, no, she wrote it. She wrote it. She wrote it. The AC. Oh, okay, Samantha. We're gonna need more input here. So, is this has this been? Yeah, come aboard real quick. Just tell us is that what happened? Okay. Hi, everyone. Yes. So it did come out during the trial that as this is youth correspondence. Yes, (laughs) Gen Z correspondent. Yeah. So she said she would donate half of her seven million dollar settlement, divorce settlement, to the ACLU. Now, in exchange for that, or in some transaction, the ACLU's comms team ghost oh wrote oh the op-ed, boy. and there are receipts of this, oh boy. and they had to take out any indication that they were talking about Johnny Depp. Thank you. Thank you, youth crime correspondent, Samantha Goldstein. I'm out. There you go. So, I did not know that part. That does add a, a political wrinkle, but they're it's suing in Virginia, Northern Virginia, because the op-ed appeared in the Washington Post. Depp says that it hurt, that the intimation that he had committed acts of domestic violence hurt his career. So they're having this thing. And Axios, Axios, did a, they they have a source, which I use and find interesting, News Whip, which is not a dessert topping. Yeah, not a dessert topping. That the average number of social media interactions per published article by selected topic, 508 for a herd Depp trial item compared to 417 for Elon Musk, compared to 170 for Joe Biden, compared to 141 for abortion, compared to 91 for the Russia-Ukraine war. And they go through and they have all, I just, I hate to do it, but I have to do it. They go through all of their little Axios, we think you're dumb 
little headlines. Why it matters. This one piece has all of them. Why it matters. <laughs> Driving the news. Backdrop. Zoom in. And be smart. The one that drives me the craziest. You're dumb, but be smart. We'll tell you. Dummy, we'll tell you about what's important about the Amber Heard trial. The big picture. Between the lines. Yes, but. And then the bottom line. And here is how dumb the bottom line is. Quote, social media is its own court of public opinion, (laughs) even if the evidence doesn't match the memes. Thank you, Axios. So anyway, I guess I would say in all of that, it is a phenomenon. It is amazing. But also, hey, that's what celebrity trial. OJ, does anybody remember OJ said like, Celebrity trials just get the news. But also to Fairfax County and its judges, don't let cameras in your courtrooms. Keep cameras out of your courtrooms. That's not good. It's not right. And it doesn't help. Keep the cameras out of your courtrooms, please. Next up, finally one I have some passion for. Bring it. Headline of the week, because it's a Taylor Lorenz item. So, you know, I've got passion for this. So the disinformation board is dead. Taylor Lorenz had a legit scoop. That oh, really? The Biden administration is pausing its disinformation board, and rightfully so. And her headline is awesome. How the Biden administration let right-wing attacks derail its disinformation efforts. Oh, my God. That's, so that's definitely our headline of the week. Um, <laughs> Talk about a bank shot. It couldn't be Biden administration made weird choice for odd board that was ill-advised and poorly ro- rolled out and now steps back. It is how dare they knuckle under to, and I assume that in there it says that it's Tucker Carlson's fault. It's really great. And then here's here's an awesome quote. So this woman, Nina Jankowitz, who is heading it, she was this Brookings, she is this Brookings Institute scholar who uh, herself peddled dis, lots of disinformation related to the to Russia collusion and and lots of other stuff. She, here's DHS's quote, Nina Jankowitz has been subjected to unjustified and vile personal attacks and physical threats. The secretary has repeatedly defended her as an eminently qualified and underscore and and underscored the importance of the department's disinformation work, and he will continue doing so. But she has not spoken publicly publicly about her position since the day it was announced. The rollout was freaking awful, and the HHS secretary was asked about it, and it. This board quickly drew comparisons to 1984, where they were saying, well, we're going to have this Office of Disinformation. She's going to lead it, but it's not going to have any operation operational capability. They clearly were not ready to talk about this office and what it would actually do. If it's not going to have operational capability, like, why are they having it in the first place? I really love the headline on that story. In the Lorenz piece, mm-hmm. a subhead is a textbook disinformation campaign, and it's how a disinformation campaign about the disinformation office killed this. And experts say that right-wing disinformation and smear campaigns regularly follow the same playbook and that it's crucial that the public and leaders of institutions, especially in the government, the media, and educational bodies, understand more fully how these cycles operate. Because no one can legitimately disagree with you. There is no such thing as legitimate disagreement. You can't have any. Jankowitz's case is a perfect example of this system at work, said Emerson T. Brooking, a resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab. They try to define these people by single 
decontextualized moments, Brookings said. So, you oh know, accurate things that they've said. Oh In other words, totally accurate things. In Nina's case, it's a few TikTok videos or one or two comments out of thousands of public appearances. They fixate on these small instances and they define this villain. Um, How dare they take things in the public record and use them again against right, publicly know, serving government officials who work for us. They never talk about all the presidents that... Uh, How dare they? They, 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 they? they never talk about all the presidents Lee Harvey Oswald didn't assassinate. You gave me a real gift this week with the following greatest, greatest New York Times headline of the week. It is a delight. Quote, I didn't give that to you. Oh, you didn't. I think someone else to thank you. Is it, is it from you? Is it is it youth crime correspondent Samantha Goldstein? The headline is a birder is back in the public eye, comma, now on his own terms. <laughs> Subhead: Christian Cooper's encounter in Central Park with a white woman who called nine one one to falsely accuse him of threatening her spurred a national outcry. Now he is hosting a birding series for National Geographic. Now, I don't know if you remember this incident. You know the birder who we all know. We, we're all familiar. With you're the all, birder. You're all familiar with Central Park birding. And, and now, for some justice, National Geographic is going to have him host a birding show. So it's all preposterous, and it's all super elite, and it's all super ridiculous. Missing in the New York Times story about this, and a lot of people will remember this uh, story where the woman was Karen'd and that she got fired and she lost her job for calling 911. Missing from this story in any adequate way is the fact that this guy was threatening her dog, right? And that the part of the story that didn't come out at the beginning of this was that he does try to scare people by he is going to harm their dog. And he was trying to, with a treat, get the dog to come to him and that he spoke very plainly that the reason that he threatened people's dogs was to protect the birds of Central Park from being disrupted by having dogs running around and barking and doing this stuff. This guy is no hero, right? And he was very open about this stuff. And this woman who filed suit for to get her job back was whatever else she did, whether she should have called the police or not. I mean, this guy, it, it, this is certainly not a clear-cut case. So, uh Quote, a birder is back in the public eye, now on his own terms. Definitely gets my New York Times Headline of the Week award, for sure. My, my Headline of the Week is is the Lorenz one. Chris, mm-hmm. good looking, the good-looking Chris, oh. it is that time for our obsessions. The stories that we cannot get out of our heads. I had the easiest, my obsession was like this big, <laughs> juicy target. It came to you. I am going first. It didn't even have to come to me. It was already there. My obsession relates to the media coverage of their the media coverage of the political strategist, former political strategist Steve Schmidt's very obvious mental unraveling that is playing out. Or I don't know if it's still playing out because he blocked me on Twitter, even though I've never tweeted at him on Twitter. It started about 10 days ago, I think, and it's just been a litany of threats and insults at former colleagues, friends, um, one after another, strangers after another. And I think, like, any clear-eyed person who's watching this would, their reaction would be, something is not right here. 
there's been some kind of a mental break. This is disturbing. And as a part of this break, he threw up Schmidt, who ran the 2008 McCain campaign, threw up a post on Substack in which he went after McCain and said, you know, McCain had an affair on the 2008 campaign. Oh, I know. I covered it up. It was terrible. McCain was a terrible person. I've been covering him all these years. And the media coverage of this was not of, like, what happened to this guy? He's a man unhinged. But it was like a rush to cover what he said about John McCain as if we should take what he's saying at face value and seriously. So Political Playbook did a deep dive interview with the headline, quote, he absolutely betrayed me. Steve Schmidt tells all about John McCain. Brian Stelter did a podcast with him and the, the following, it has the following tagline. Steve Schmidt talks with Brian Stelter about his headline-making war with John McCain's family. Schmidt explains why he is sharing secrets from McCain's 2008 campaign, how his stories have relevance for political journalists, and why he feels compelled to annotate history now. Schmidt also discusses challenges for the press and says the next few years are going to be, quote, wild, chaotic, and dangerous. 2024, he believes, could be a last-choice election. Oh, my gosh. The Times also did a story about Schmidt's claim that he didn't even vote for John McCain in 2008, which he is just saying now. But uh, I find it so, like, eye-popping and galling that the media is basically exploiting a guy who is having a mental breakdown. And in the Substack post and tweets... He's saying that he had no responsibility for tapping Sarah Palin, something that contradicts the book Game Change, for which he was a primary source. Oh, yeah. And that contradicts previous interviews he's given. And they make the the press makes no mention of the fact that in his current breakdown rants, he's contradicting previous statements and therefore, you know, may not be being totally straightforward because either he was lying then or he's lying now and it's ridiculous and despicable and my view is they are only covering this because they think it hurts republicans and makes republicans look bad well i I don't doubt that that is a part of it but i think the other part of it is guys like heilman and halperin who gave you know the regular media sponge baths to steve schmidt and the, the people who made Steve Schmidt, the Republican strategist Steve Schmidt and his media career and all the ways he was quoted and all of those things, I think there's a certain propping up here from these same folks to say, like, Steve Schmidt has interesting things to say. I wrote about this back in March when he was going on these just crazy tirades against Maggie Haberman and accusing her of access journalism. He just had his lawyers write the Times a long lunatic letter that, I mean, he must have written it and had paid lawyers to put their letterhead on it because it is totally bonkers. And for Steve Schmidt to accuse anybody of practicing access journalism after briefing against his own campaign to make himself more, all of the stuff that he did, 
I think there is is preposterous, but I think there's a part of it here that they need to sort of a more rational space. These journos would say, "Oh, Steve Schmidt was never as good as we thought he was, and things have kind of come to a sad end with him and his political career." But you'll also remember he was supposed to be the vanguard of the kind of Republican Party that the mainstream press would like, right? The, the John McCain, Arnold Schwarzenegger, climate aware. Pro-gay marriage. Yeah, the new the new Republican Party. Steve Schmidt was an avatar of that thing. And then the, the nightmarish disaster of the Lincoln Project and all of the sad, sad ways in which this has fallen down. I think there is some desire to prop, prop him up to say like, Steve Schmidt still has interesting stuff to say. Steve Schmidt ain't got anything interesting to say, and he hasn't well, for a it long is kind time. Well, it is kind of interesting, Ooh. I must say. It's sad. That's my, my obsession. My, my, my obsession will be the same probably for all of primary season. Oh, I'm, this is my obsession too. Which is not every race is actually about Donald Trump, and Madison Cawthorn didn't win or lose because of Donald Trump. The the cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs candidate out in Idaho, who this the sitting lieutenant governor who challenged the sitting governor in the Republican primary for governor in Idaho, Janice Geechin, did not lose because of Donald Trump's endorsement. She lost because she is obviously unfit. She's just no way. And she was sitting a challenge. She was challenging a sitting governor. So whatever. Pushing all of these races through Trump as we talked about last week is a mistake. And, you know, we know that we know the truth. The three thing, the only, the only thing that the Democrats, Donald Trump and the media agree on every time is that Donald Trump should be the whole story, right? Every, everything should be about Donald Trump. These issues and schisms inside the Republican party long predate Donald Trump. But Kathy Barnett did an amazingly good job. I agree. I thought she was awesome. Well, uh, that, I don't know that that's the word that I would no, use for her. I know what you're about to say. Okay. When she basically said that, like, MAGA was never about Trump. Well, that I that that goes to the first point. The first point is, and, and Trump channeled voters. Right. He okay? was following voters. They weren't following him. And he, like, he's the only guy who at these rallies he is like reading the crowd. Right. He is channeling them, and I it was amazing. I was telling my husband this morning because he was sort of like. He, my husband's not super political, so he's like, D- don't you think Trump's endorsement matters? And I I said, I'm not really sure. I mean, look, Oz is neck and neck, and Madison Cawthorn lost, yeah. and J- J.D. Vance won. Like, does it matter? I, I don't know. Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Yet, work. On MSNBC, the whole coverage is 24 candidates who Trump endorsed, and Fox, by the way. Yeah. Like, they all want to say how much it matters. Right. The media, Democrats, and Donald Trump agree on one uh, thing, totally. is that Donald Trump is always like, the story. not really clear to me. So, Kathy Barnett, and just to do the, the political analysis part, to, before I get to the, the actual obsession part, is Kathy Barnett, her her success, she got a quarter of the vote in what was essentially a three-way race. She's the first insurrection, grassroots insurrection against Donald Trump from the nationalist populist wing, the Pat Buchanan wing of the Republican Party. And she said, we were here first. You came for us. That's very significant. And in time, and as I wrote in my column this week, this is what 2024 may look like, right? Trump will say, I am 
it for this wing. And people like Kathy Barnett will say, no, we want somebody even wilder than you. And I did think it was hilarious. Sean Hannity and others were like, she has tweets that are controversial. She can't win in the general election. I'm oh like, my gosh. where have I heard that? Well, I feel like I've heard someone described as having bad tweets and a shady past and therefore shouldn't be the nominee. I will say I was watching Fox last night for these election returns. It, it was amazing. Uh, I used to be a writer for Sean Hannity. I was shocked by how much Fox has changed to basically Hannity openly. Yeah. He's like campaigning for Oz. He's openly and campaigning for he Oz. Just was, and Laura was like for, openly campaigning for McCormick. It's gross. It was amazing. And yes, it, the entire show was like questions to the guests about it. He was like trying to throw softballs down the middle to get them to say that Kathy Barnett can't win in general. Yeah. When, when at nine o'clock, you're not going to change any votes. So he was like trying to sandbag the Republican nominee. The degree to. If she, if she were to win. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's another thing to look out for in 2024 will be the continuing divisions, which the Fox primary will not be who's Fox backing. It'll be which individual host is backing which individual candidate. But that was a, a, the real point here that I wanted to make was Kathy, if, if, there had not been the coverage of the Barnett surge that was picked up in polls late in the race. Fox News had a poll. Other people had polls. And here Barnett showed up. So then I'm doing hits at News Nation on election night. And it's like, well, is Barnett underperforming? And I want to say, no, why did no, she's not underperforming. This is amazing. She spent a fraction of what these other candidates did. She did all of this stuff on a shoestring budget and got a quarter of the vote in defiance of Donald Trump. When Donald Trump is sending out robocalls attacking her, when all of this money is being dropped on her head, she did a quarter of the vote. So this is just a thing to say, media expectations game. And for candidates, and in terms of when we get into subjective descriptions of who's surging, who's whatever, it's not what you're doing, it's what you're doing compared to what reporters think you're supposed to be doing. And Kathy Barnett is a perfect case study. She went from being nobody in the coverage to being somehow the presumptive winner in the course of about five days. And when she came up short, a little short, but still did an amazing insurgency, it was like, oh, well, Barnett fizzles. And you're like, well, no. But anyway, that's just that. It's time for my favorite segment of the week, which is reader mail. We got a good one, Chris, from Joe. Okay. Who has more thoughts on our batting around the definition of the term based. Yes. They're Uh, trying to educate us. Joe has thoughts. Joe writes, you guys have well-intentioned boomers giving you definitions. I can make this easy. Based is the successor to woke. The idea of being woke was to be awoken to the truth. Similarly, based is short for based in reality and was initially used on the left and then shortly after grabbed by right-wing trolls wanting to take away their dumb words. Based is often used to comedic effect for something that is true but maybe isn't socially popular. I just evicted a single mother who was in paying rent. Based. You say based in response to anything that is true. You're complimenting the person for being based in reality. If you are trying to be funny, you say it to something shocking like the above example. Honestly, the staff of the Free Beacon should spend some time in the comments of Wall Street bets and political compass memes <laughs> on Reddit to get a good real-world example of modern Gen Z parlance. Blessings. And Joe, Joe, I will. I am going to copy and paste your email to in an all-staff 
note to Free Beacon reporters shortly after we finish taping. I like it. Thanks, Joe. Where, Eliana, can people write us if they have... Please write us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. Thanks, Joe. Chris? Mm-hmm. It is now time for your favorite segment of the week. Where... I am forced to say something nice, which will not be a problem this week. But, as always, you lead by example. Well, David Folkenfleck at NPR did a great piece on the Pulitzer Prizes. And you know how last week we were talking about Pulitzer Prizes came out and all that stuff. And one of the true odiums in American journalistic history, of course, is the work of Walter Duranty, who was the New York Times correspondent to the Soviet Union, who knowingly concealed Stalin's terror famines because he was a communist sympathizer. And he did not want to make Stalin look bad. He did not want to do all this stuff. And he was a despicable, despicable person. And Walter Duranty won a Pulitzer. Then the question is, should the New York Times give the Pulitzer back? And it's been debated again and again and talked about again and again. And Folkenflik interviews, and this is really interesting, Bill Keller, the former executive editor of the New York Times, has second thoughts about the fact that when the last time the debate about giving back Walter Duranty's uh, Pulitzer Prize came up, that he did not push harder. And kudos to kudos to Keller, kudos to Folkenflik, kudos to NPR, all around good, reminding the world what a rotten, rotten thing that the New York Times did, that Walter Duranty did through the New York Times is a good thing. And I'm glad that everybody can dislike Joseph Stalin now. My favorite item came as Clarence Thomas sat down in Dallas for a conversation with his former clerk, the Berkeley law professor, John Yu. Let's play the tape. One of the things I'd say in response to the media is when they talk about, especially early on, about the way I did my job, I said, I will absolutely leave the court when I do my job as poorly as you do yours. (laughs) And that was meant as a compliment, really. (laughs) I think we've neglected this side of the room. Oh, gosh. All the way over here, yes. It really is good to be me. It really is. <laughs> well, I love that. Mm-hmm. Bravo, CT. Well, that's a it's a it's a favorite of his. It's it's his one of his good comebacks for all time. And but you note he says it's really getting to be mean. It's getting to be mean now because he's now he says it's true. That is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review at least. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.